Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Audrey Mellard on October 2nd, 2021. Audrey introduces us to her first biography entitled When Reason Sleeps, the story of a Baha'i arrested, imprisoned, and executed, and his wife's escape. The protagonist is a woman in Iran named Marenghis, or Mary by those who know her. Audrey tells the story of Mary's husband, who was arbitrarily arrested, imprisoned, and executed in Iran simply for being a Baha'i, and recounts Mary's own imprisonment in a squalid prison a year after her husband's execution, and her dramatic escape from Iran from religious persecution. Audrey describes the process she went through to capture Mary's story. I started the interview by asking Audrey where she grew up, and what was religious life like growing up. Well, I grew up in Yorkshire, in England. Religious life was mainly what I got at school. My parents had been very involved with the church where they met and were involved in the youth activities in that church, running the girl guides and the scouts and that sort of thing. But when they moved away from there, they never seemed to take up the church-going activities, except that we would go Christmas and Easter. And that was about the extent of it. So really, I got my religious instruction from school. Morning assembly and that sort of thing. And then as we went up the school, I think we had scripture lessons when we studied Bible stories and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a religious school, so to speak. No, no, definitely not. So at that time, there was no concern about mixing religion with schooling No, it was quite a normal part of it that you would have uh, some sort of religious instruction at school. I think it's a pity that that has been lost, actually, because a lot of children who don't have any parental input, they don't get to hear about religion at all. So they have no basis on which to decide for themselves as they grow up. Yeah, the concern, though, was probably the Christian-centric approach. Yes, indoctrination, not education. So how old were you when your parents moved so that they were no longer going to church, so to speak? Oh, when I was very young. What was your spiritual journey that took you to that kind of religious background to becoming a Baha'i? Well, it started with a complete rejection of anything to do with religion. And I had some strange experiences of religious um, intolerance that was not anything more than Protestant and Catholic because I was brought up in the Church of England, a Protestant church. But at my first example of this was at my all-girls school when two sisters joined the school and they were not from an uneducated background because the father was a headmaster at one of the schools in the town, but they were Roman Catholic. And by their own choice, they didn't come into our morning assembly, which was a reading from the Bible, which interestingly enough was used to teach all the children in turn voice projection, because every new girl had to go and read 
day's reading from the Bible from the platform and you had a run through with the teacher standing at the other end of the hall and you had to be able to project your voice so that she could hear you perfectly clearly. And that's a, a sort of lesson for life, if you like, and was very simple. But these girls missed out on all that because they chose not to come into our assembly. And as I say, we had the reading from the Bible, a couple of hymns, prayer, and the headmistress's announcements. And they came in for the headmistress's announcements. That was the first example. And I questioned that because I thought, well, we use the same Bible. We use the prayer Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer. What do we do that's so awful that these girls are going to be contaminated if they come into our assembly? And it just seemed so wrong. It was one of the things that put me off religion completely. And another thing was my brother, my eldest brother, was killed when he was 27. And my parents' friends, a married couple, were at the hospital with them for, it must have been about 18 hours they were there. And then when it was all over and the ventilator was switched off, it was before the intensive care units existed, they organized taxi home and dealt with all the paperwork at the hospital. And then when it came to the funeral, they were Roman Catholic. Who was Roman Catholic? These friends of my parents, they okay. were at the hospital with them for, they must have been there for about 18 hours altogether and supported them wonderfully and organized taxi home and all that sort of thing and dealt with the hospital administration side of things. But to attend the funeral, they had to get special permission from their priest. And they came to the funeral on the basis of they were allowed to sit in the church, but they were not allowed to participate in any way. So they sat, arms folded, back straight, rigid and unbending, and it would have been better if they hadn't come. Fortunately, I think they were out of my parents' line of sight, so I think perhaps they didn't even see this. But to me, it was dreadful they weren't allowed to take part in a funeral service. And that was another of the reasons that put me off religion. I thought, how can this be? It's so divisive that it can't be right. So my spiritual journey, I suppose, started with complete rejection of the religions that were around me. But I found, having tried to throw away religion, that I couldn't get rid of the idea that there was an afterlife because I knew some very, very interesting old people and I'm talking about people in the late 80s and 90s who were still interested in what was going on in the world around them. They were still following up their interests and they were amazing. And I thought, what is the point of this tremendous intellect that mankind is endowed with if it finishes when you're dead? That would just be a sick joke. So out of that, I developed an idea that there had to be an afterlife to make some sense out of this life. But I didn't know any way to find anything that was at all in line with what I was vaguely thinking, really. I mean, I was sort of floundering, but I sort of 
put it on one side and concentrated on bringing up my family and, and all life in general until I met a Baha'i. And how did that happen? Well, my husband is a sculptor and he'd been showing some of his stuff at an exhibition and we didn't know, but the people organizing the exhibition had just become Baha'is about two weeks before. Now, it's amazing how these things happen because had they talked to us about religion, we would not have wanted to know because we were not on the same wavelength as these people. But they introduced us to a, a young man who was a Baha'i and he was so on fire with his faith that I felt that whatever he had to tell us about it was worth looking into. And the strangest thing happened because they said there would be a fireside meeting. A fireside is when Baha'is are invited to come and hear a talk about the faith or something like that. So we get together usually in someone's house because we don't have any churches, no clergy. So it's all done very informally. But they told us there would be this meeting and all we had was a telephone number for the shop where we knew that they would be taking the pictures from the exhibition back to before they went home. So we went home, tried to ring the shop, got no reply. We stayed on that line for 45 minutes, which was so completely out of character for us because we would normally have let it ring for a couple of times and said, oh, we'll, we'll try in half an hour and then probably forgotten about it and went off and do something else. But on this occasion, we stayed on the line, taking it in turns for 45 minutes until the phone was picked up. And that was really strange. But of course, it took us to the faith. Well, by the next morning, when I went off to work, he was a Baha'i. <laughs> and when I got home, he said, this is the word of God and nobody's been messing about with it. And I looked at this man and I thought, hmm, <laughs> I said, well, uh, well, uh, we we better go and start getting dinner ready. <laughs> but, you know, he declared as quickly as that. Now, I didn't want to join anything. The people at the fireside had actually given us a book, which was The Earth is But One Country by John Huddleston. And if you've never read that, I would strongly recommend it because his analysis of the world situation is so accurate that anybody who can see the problems of society as clearly as he could, his solution, if he has one, must be worth looking at. So we looked at it and we both became Baha'is. Our daughter was at university. This is where it gets really funny or strange, according to your point of view. Sarah telephoned us about a couple of days after I had just declared. And I was on one phone, my husband was on the extension, and we're jabbering at her like idiots about this wonderful change that had come into our lives because we'd been a very quiet, self-contained couple with few friends, but close friends, but nobody living near to us. We didn't socialize and go to the... We actually lived next door to a public house, but we didn't go to it because it, nothing there appealed to us. But suddenly... We're going here, there, and everywhere, doing all these Baha'i things. And this quiet little voice on the phone said, I think I'd better come home. I'm down on Friday. <laughs> and she put the phone down on us. 
Well, she went off to talk to somebody at college. What did they know about the Baha'i faith? And they told her such rubbish that she said, oh, no, she said, my parents are in educated intellectuals. They're not going to be involved in anything like that. In some strange sect. She said, I shall go and find out for myself. She came down late on Friday evening. We all travelled down to my family party in Lincolnshire on the Saturday or Sunday. I can't remember which. She went back to college on the Monday morning a Baha'i. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was the spiritual journey that took me to the faith. Mm -hmm. Well, that was 1981, so it's about, what, 40 years ago? You're the author of the book, When Reason Sleeps, the story of a Baha'i arrested in prison and executed and his wife's escape. Before we get into the story, was writing always a part of your life? Oh, since I was seven years old, yes. When my father had to explain to me the meaning of plagiarism, because I told him I was writing a book, but what I was actually doing was continuing a book that I'd been given. So he said, no, darling, you can't do that. You have to do your own thing. But I always wanted to write. I could never decide what I was going to write. I had a very fertile imagination that turned towards crime and forensics and all that sort of thing. But I always hesitated because I was afraid of putting ideas into anyone's head. So I decided that was not for me. And then, of course, when I became a Baha'i, I started doing press releases. In fact, I would say I had a 100% success rate while we lived in England, to the extent that the local paper, if they were short of a half a column inch, would ring me up and say, any Baha'i news this week? And we could get anything that we wanted into the local paper, which was lovely. And I did a very brief, I think it was two minutes long, which was quite a taxing exercise for a TV script. Oh, that's when we were in Scotland. But it was for one of those God slots late at night called Thought for the Day or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was a very precise exercise. It had to exactly fit the timing where you can get an idea across in that brief thing is quite a taxing exercise, but we managed it quite well. So tell us about the story uh, When Reason Sleeps. What inspired you to tell this particular story? Well, when I met Morangis, the subject of the biography, she was always telling people about her husband. Listening to her, I thought, she has a story that should be heard because what happened to him has changed her life, it's changed the lives of her sons and these things go on down the generations really. So and I thought her story was really worth telling. So I thought about it for a long time until I thought, hang on, if anybody's going to tell her story, it's going to have to be me. So I did. This was a unique endeavor for you. What did you find that you had to understand well, and learn to proceed such a major project that you've not undertaken before? Well, I learned that biography is really my forte because you're not making anything up. You are telling someone's story. We had a lot of difficulty with it because the only language we had in common was English and Mary wasn't happy with her English, although it's better than she thought it was. But I had great difficulty getting 
a coherent story from her or the details she couldn't always translate like who the people were in prison what was their function i mean the man that hit her in the face i couldn't relate it to anything i knew of the european court system in any country that somebody could be so brutal when she's there under interrogation i couldn't imagine that anybody could actually do that hit her in the face so hard that it knocked her teeth out that's dreadful but it doesn't relate to anything that i knew about i couldn't understand who these people were that could do such things you know so i had great difficulty when i said who was this man she couldn't explain to me just who he was or what his part in the judicial system was but we, we plowed on anyway and i think i managed to get where i needed to be without worrying about that sort of thing too much i had oh hours of interviewing her and talking to her about it and getting the story out which came in little nuggets here and there she wouldn't be recorded so every time i set my tape recorder up she told me to switch it off and she clammed up on that so what i lost was her spirituality i didn't have shorthand i didn't have any way of writing this stuff down she wouldn't be recorded and all i could do was frantically scribble and try and keep up with her and it became a sort of incoherent mess that i couldn't decipher afterwards so that was a non-starter but what i lost was her authentic voice when she was at her most spiritual i couldn't put words into her mouth i had to use only what she actually said to me so it became a little bit prosaic when i would have liked some of the more spiritual things but i didn't get that just because of the difficulties as i said there was really no remedy and you just plowed yes, through? Yes, I, I didn't have any way to get round it except by just carrying on and try and get as much detail from her as I could. I had to keep it as factually accurate as I could. Of course, when it was all reviewed, because it's set in Iran and the sensitivities, detail had to be taken out, names and things like that, but I could understand the reasons for all of that. So we just had to uh, carry on and accept because it would be dreadful to put anyone at risk by naming them for instance people who still have relatives in Iran it's a big responsibility to do that sort of thing so you have to be very very careful so you're saying the, the bahais couldn't be named you're saying yes yes uh-huh. because that could be very dangerous for them so it sounds like the husband of the protagonist had a story of his own yes. in addition to the one you wrote. Yes. Can you briefly tell us what his story was? Well, he was brought up by actually a woman who turned out to be his stepmother. He didn't remember to tell Morangis that until they'd been married for quite some time. But she was a descendant of one of the Letters of the Living, and that's where that little story about the Bab comes from, briefly. The Bab is the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. He announced the coming of one greater than himself. So they were twin manifestations. The Bab had 18, like the disciples of Christ, they were called the letters of the living, and he was sending them out to spread the word about the Baha'i faith, or about the Babi faith, as it was at that time. And they said to him, well, your holiness, I'm paraphrasing, of course, Uh, We can go on foot or we can ride donkeys. How are we going to get this round the world? And he said, 
again paraphrasing, don't worry, energy has been released into the world that will provide a system of communications that will solve all these problems, if you like. And the declaration of the Barb was on the same date as Samuel Morse in America sent the first message by telegraph, which was, what hath God wrought? Which is one of those coincidences that's beyond coincidence, if you like. It's a significant passage from the Bible. Yes. It's very important, actually, that, because it just illustrates that from that we've got this system of communications that is absolutely amazing in the world that has all come from that, really. The protagonist's husband uh, was a descendant of the Letters of the Living. Yes, it was his stepmother that told Manuchir about that. Otherwise, it would have been forgotten, because I haven't mm -hmm. come across it anywhere else at all. So is there any other aspect of his story that... Just that he was a completely blameless individual, trying to live a decent life, trying to do the best that he could for his family and to spread his religion. And for that, he was tortured and executed. And no one deserves that. Is that when the story begins for you in your book? No, my story begins a long time before that, when Marangas' father witnessed the destruction of his family estate when he was about 14 years old, I think. We don't know, we can't prove that he actually witnessed it. I think, as I say in my introduction, this is the only flight of fancy that I've allowed myself, and that was to, to attribute it to him. But he certainly told Morangis about it as if he'd witnessed it himself, and somebody saw mm -hmm. it, so it seemed a reasonable assumption to make. I have explained in the preface that it was a flight of fancy to say that he saw it, but he did actually tell Morangis as if he had seen it himself. But of course, he was 85 when he died, and she was only about 18, so he'd lived a long time, had a grown-up family before she was born, so it uh, memory gets faulty. But it made a good opening. So can you describe for us the protagonist's cause for arrest, her life in prison and escape? Well, as far as I can make out, there was no cause for her to be arrested, except that she was the wife of a Baha'i, and she was a Baha'i herself, a Baha'i who had been executed. There was nothing else. Didn't charge her with anything except being a Baha'i. She says, oh yes, I am a Baha'i. And she was actually sentenced to death for no other reason, again, except that she was a Baha'i. You see, in Islam, they believed that Muhammad was the seal of the prophets, and there can't be another prophet. But Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, says, no, that's the end of the prophetic age. Now we're in the age of fulfillment. What was her life in prison Well, like? first of all, she was extremely weak when she went into prison. She's a very slightly built woman, not very tall, and she'd had a serious operation that had left her very, very weak. She needed a period of recuperation. She didn't get that. When she was put into prison, again, it seems so far outside our experience, not that I have experience of prison, you understand, but of what 
happens to people when they're sent to prison here. We expect them to be put into a, a cell to be fed and looked after. There, she just seemed to have been thrown into a courtyard and left to sit on the ground. And until she had a bed, she wasn't on any list for any food. She could have died in that courtyard until another prisoner who happened to be a Baha'i said to um, whoever was in charge, look, you have to do something about this lady because she's going to die here in in the courtyard. Do you want that? And that's when they found a bed for her and started giving her some food. I mean, how can you understand a system like that? It's just outside our experience. She could have just been left to die. But anyway, she survived. How long was she in prison? Do you know, I'm not sure that I actually know. It couldn't have been very long because they decided to send her out to get fit enough to be hung, which again is outside our experience, but they expected her to be strong enough to stand up to be hung so that they could execute her. Yeah, they shoot the men and hang the women, apparently. Such a barbaric situation is really hard to understand. Because she wasn't fit enough for their purpose, they said that she should go out to a hospital. Initially, they told her to go for two or three days to get some treatment, as if there was a magic wand that somebody was going to be able to wave over and say, OK, you're fit now, go back. But of course, it doesn't work like that. She, she went back to the prison, but she was so weak that she had two friends escorting her and actually holding her up. And they sent her away, said, oh, no, go away and we'll come and get you eventually. So that's when she got the chance to escape. How did she escape? There was a young man who was trying to learn how to be a doctor. Being a Baha'i, he wasn't allowed to go to university. So his only chance of doing it was to learn sort of on the job, which would not qualify him, but he would learn something of it. So he was giving her B12 injections. But he came to give her an injection and said this would be the last time he would be able to see her because he had an opportunity to escape and he was going to take it. And he was going the very next day, I think, or the next couple of days. So she thought about it for all of five seconds and then begged him to take her and her daughter with him. How old was her daughter? About 12, 11 or 12. Her two sons were in the UK already. They'd been sent out before the revolution. They were sent out for their education, perfectly legitimately, and not as a way to escape or anything like that, but um, that's where they were. So she just had the daughter with her. The young man that was going to escape came back and said, yes, they would take her. They wanted so much money. I don't know what the exact sums was. It was quite a lot, I think. But she managed to raise the money because the house that her and her husband had owned She'd been allowed to have two rooms there. And some people in the part of the house that it had been divided into, not by her, but by the authorities, they were Muslims. She remains extremely grateful to these people. They had never paid any rent. Nobody had asked them for rent. So they said, OK, we'll give you all the money that we owe in rent. So they gave her an awful lot more money than they would have paid in rent to help her escape and somebody else who actually was a relative I think paid her for what sticks of furniture she had because most of her stuff was taken away by the 
revolutionary guards and they used to turn up and just take what they fancied so she didn't have much in the way of furniture or anything but a relative actually gave her money for that so she got the amount that she needed to escape and it was a very interesting journey and people have to read the book to to find out oh yes how interesting it is (laughs) yes Yes. (laughs) would you like to read an excerpt from when reason sleeps well yes indeed i would read one from the chapter on prison chapter 12 the many sessions of interrogation that mary had to endure were always difficult when one man lashed out with his fist hitting her in the face and knocking out some teeth Her main reaction was amazement that anyone could do such a thing. In all her life, no one had ever struck her in anger. Through the blood and the tears that flowed automatically, she struggled to remain calm. Even when she was told that it was their intention to exterminate all the Baha'is in Iran, to cleanse the world of all Baha'is, to which she responded fearlessly, When you killed my husband, his nephew, who lives in Canada, arranged a memorial service for him. 500 people attended, and it was shown on television to thousands of people. Much good publicity for us. Every week there is a half-hour program on their television station. People are asking lots of questions, and they are becoming Baha'is. Every Baha'i has friends and relatives who are spreading the word. So I ask God to give the Ayatollah long life so that he continue his work of spreading the Baha'i faith for us. Late one night, Mary was taken from the cell. She thought that she was to be executed or interrogated, and concentrated all her mental strength on preparing herself spiritually, repeating and repeating to herself the name of God. For many weeks now, she had expected this every night. This time, she was escorted to another part of the prison, Here she was put into a cell and made to listen to the screams of a young girl coming from an adjacent cell. Listen to your daughter, the guards jeered at her. The sounds were horrendous and heart-rending and seemed to go on forever. Mary was close to collapse when the man who had taken her there whispered in an attempt to comfort her, it is not your daughter. But Mary could find no comfort in that. Indeed, what sort of a human being would be able to find comfort in the fact that it was someone else's child? If not my daughter, she is someone's daughter, she replied. Mary does not know how long she was forced to stay there or how long this torture lasted, but eventually she was returned to the cell, where her cellmates had spent the time quietly praying for her safe return. They were very glad that she was unharmed but horrified when she told them what she had been forced to listen to. Now she was tormented by new fears for Shanna's safety. Shanna was having a very difficult time while Mary was in prison. She was naturally consumed by grief for her father and terrified at the prospect of losing her mother because somehow she knew of Mary's death sentence, although no one had told her. She was crying every day at home and at school where she confided in a sympathetic school friend who she thought understood her situation. This girl, no doubt horrified and thinking the adults would be able to help Shanna, reported to the teachers that Roshanak had told her that her father had been executed and her mother was in prison, sentenced to death. The headmistress asked her guardian to attend a meeting at which the head and all the teachers were present. 
Roshanak, the headmistress said, has told the children something very dreadful, and the children came to me. Shanna was summoned to the meeting. The headmistress was very nice to her. If your father and mother are very bad people, she said, you should not be ashamed. Do not worry. Do not cry for them. It is not your fault. We will care for you and help you to become a good Muslim. Shanna stood up to her bravely. I only cry because I miss my parents very much, but I am not ashamed. I love them and I am very proud of them. The head became very cross and struck her, telling her to get out. So Shanna left that school too. So I'm speaking with Audrey Millard. She just read from her book, When Reason Sleeps, the story of a Baha'i arrested, imprisoned, and executed, and his wife's escape. So Audrey, where can people find When Reason Sleeps? I think it's available on Amazon, and it's published by George Ronald in Oxford. Now that you've accomplished this endeavor, do you have any thoughts about a future book? Well, if I do any more writing, I'm trying to start a campaign to get a miscarriage of justice sorted out, but I'm not having much success with that. I've done an essay about the person involved. I'm hoping that if I keep at it, I might get some press coverage for it. And apart from that, there is a man, he's no longer alive, but a man I met in Orkney, which is one of the islands off the northeast coast of Scotland. He was quite an inspiring character, and I would love to do a biography of him. But whether it will happen or not, I don't know. I am 85 after all. Well, Audrey, I want to thank you so much for telling us about your spiritual journey and your biography. When Reason Sleeps, the story of a Baha'i arrested, imprisoned, executed, and his wife's escape. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Audrey Mellard, author of the biography, When Reason Sleeps, the story of a Baha'i arrested, imprisoned, and executed, and his wife's escape. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website, abahaiperspective.com, and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. upon my beauty close thine eyes to the world and all that is therein for my will and the will of another than me even as fire and water cannot dwell together in one house
of thy servants That they may behold thee and cleanse their hearts That they may turn unto the court of thy heavenly favors And recognize him who is the manifestation of thyself And the day spring of thine essence Verily thou art the Lord of all worlds There is no God but thee The unconstrained The all-subduing Baha'u'llah of thy servants that they may behold thee and cleanse their hearts that they may turn unto the court of thy heavenly favors and recognize him who is the manifestation of thyself and the day spring of thine essence verily thou art the Lord of all worlds there is no God but thee Subduing
by many a different name. One father loving each the same.
Many the ways all of us pray to one God. Many the paths winding their way to one God. Walk with me, brother.
Sky.